Hello, and uh, welcome to a special ungagged podcast interview. I'm Connor Beaton, and I'm happy to be joined today by Glasgow SNP councillor Graham Campbell. Graham, hi. Hi, Connor. How are you doing? Um, can you maybe start off, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you introduce yourself and maybe give us just a wee flavour of your political background? Okay, um, as my voice will tell you, uh, if you're listening on, on, on sound, um, i African, Scottish, Jamaican, London, Glasgow, Rastafarian, um, so just your average sort of uh, independence activist. I've been a supporter of independence since 1994. I joined the SNP in 2016 after a long sort of time in the far left in Britain. Uh, I was an SSP member for several years when I first came to Scotland in 2002. And uh, I've been part of the left of the SNP since I joined in 2016. Uh, I became a councillor in 2017, the, the, the city and the party's first African-Caribbean councillor. And since 2022, I got re-elected and the, I've been the... the uh, the African Caribbean Council to be re-elected. And I've been uh, a supporter of independence since 1994, since first coming to Scotland to visit. And uh, when I moved to Scotland in 2002, I'd come with a, a background in black radical politics and in the, in the far left, you know, sort of from the Trotsky's end of it. And uh, mm -hmm. so it was a natural fit to join the SSP when I came here in 2002 to live. Um, how fortunate with the far left the way it was, it, 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 it it was uh, a bit of chaos towards the end, so I attempted to be part of the rise thing. That didn't really work, but I was involved in, tangentially anyway with Rick and with the independence movement at the time of the referendum. Um, but locally, I got very involved with my local SNP branch because they were the, the backbone of the independence campaign in my bit of Glasgow in Proven. Uh, and uh, obviously, I knew all of them and then found that all of them joined the S SNP on the the day after the referendum, except me. And it took me another two years before I joined. I joined in 2016. Uh, and at that point, uh, there was a deputy leadership contest. Tommy Shepard was running for it, and I supported him. And I joined SNP Socialists at that point. I then became a councillor in 2017 um, in Glasgow. I represented Springburn, Rob Royston. I became the first African-Caribbean councillor to represent the SNP and to be in Glasgow City Council. I was re-elected in 2022. And in between that time, I've been on the national executive for four years uh, as the party's first BAME convener. Uh, so I've been quite been quite involved in the SNP's life over the last four or five years. Yeah, it's a very long and varied <laughs> journey, I think, to the SNP. I'm curious to know, as someone who's qualified uh, the process of joining the SNP and adapting to the culture of it. Was there a bit of you know, political culture shock in there? Not really. Um, but reason being, I could say this, because obviously I had a life in England before. I was part of the far left, and I, I'm from Islington North. So um, mm. I know Jeremy Corbyn very well. I was a member of my old May branch Labour Party, which was the left-wing branch within the left-wing constituency with the left-wing MP. So my experience mm -hmm. of being in the Labour Party was very different uh, to probably most people's during the 90s. You know, So although there was Blairism, there was a very strong uh, left grassroots opposition to him, especially in London, and I was part of that. Uh, so I had always had an experience of dealing with reformist broad church parties, which had the whole panoply of the left, you know, every kind of leftist mm -hmm. you can think of was there so and jeremy was a kind of presiding sort of presence over all of this you know um and, and so i've had that experience of dealing with reformism and being able to put your own politics in your own authentic voice in an atmosphere of of you know tolerance within the left uh so my experience of dealing with that has been very different so i i look at the smp very differently because i've i've come at it with the experience of as a revolution being part of a, a wider, broader party. Hmm. So you mentioned the SNP Socialists. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what the SNP Socialists actually is as an organisation and what kind of activities is it involved in? Okay, well, when it was started, it was started by some members of the, the YSI within the party. And I think what they wanted was a more sort of very clear anti-neoliberal perspective. And I suppose what you need to sort of grasp, I suppose, is where this has come from. The SNP has always had socialists in it from the very founders of the movement. Uh, 
uh, it's always had a, a, a left. And at various times, that left has been organised and not. Uh, and for the last, uh, up until 2016, there wasn't really an organised left in the SNP since the 90s. When I first came to Scotland, there was a magazine called Liberation Magazine, which was, you could call that the sort of left cultural nationalist uh, magazine. And there were a few people like George Caravan, people like that who were still around in the party but come from a, a sort of Marxist background uh, but very much a marginalised force because the, the party was predominantly a sort of northeast of England petty bourgeois national party. What's changed with the referendum in 2014 is that the vast numbers of working class and lower middle class activists who joined it, mainly in the central belt and in the cities as well, has changed its character. It's more very like, I would say, the Labour Party that I recognised from the 90s. It was, it's of the same class composition. It's got, and you know, like the independence movement 2014, it has, you know, anti-nuclear activists, anti-racist activists, anti-imperialist activists, climate change activists, trade unionists, and so on. The same kind of mix of people I used to see in Labour Party conferences I attended in the 90s. It's, you're finding them in the SNP. Uh, so I think that the class nature of the party and the balance of class within it has changed. It's still a coalition between working class, middle class, and some elements of the the uh, the, the, the capitalists, uh, but uh, very much now much more working class, and that's reflected in who's getting elected to the executive over the last few years. Hmm. So obviously the SNP has been barely at headlines for, for the past um you know, several months, especially since the Supreme Court ruling last year on whether an independence referendum would happen. Uh, I'm curious to get your perspective as someone in the party who's on the left. Um, firstly, on the recent leadership contest, uh, that was one in which I think some would argue there was a clear left-right split. Um, what is your assessment of, is, is Hamza Yusuf's programme, is this a move to the left or to the right from his predecessor? And what how do you think socialists should understand some of the changes that have taken place in the SNP at a higher level? Okay, I didn't quite answer your last question, which probably helps me to answer this one. <laughs> SNP Socialists was formed in 2016, so I wasn't one of the founders. Uh, and I joined it at the time when it was supporting Tommy Shepard as the deputy leadership candidate. And uh, Tommy lost that uh, contest to Keith Brown by about a margin of three to one, more or less, you could say, um, so at best, you could say uh, a third of the activists and a quarter of the members backed Tommy Shepard. Uh, so the left, and that was clearly on a left perspective. Uh, and if you held that contest today, I would I would reckon that Tommy would win it now if, if we had that same contest today. Uh, and I think that's because SNP Socialists as a group of activists is not really ideological. We are pragmatists. But what that meant is that we've tried to form party policy and party policies for conference motions to check and shift the party's agenda to the left. So you're seeing it in stuff like the National Care Service, the the National Infrastructure Company, uh, National Energy Company, those policies. And you look at conference, the kind of speakers you get in, many of them are our members and supporters who put those 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 uh, positions forward and shifted the policy dial on how we see just transition, how we see a well-being economy. We're trying to shape with practical policies that push the party's perspective to the left. And I think we've succeeded in that. And that's been reflected on who's getting elected uh, to the executive. So several of our members are We're also quite strong in the affiliates. So we have members in the Out for Independence. Uh, I'm the, the, the chair of the BAME network. Uh, we have disabled members group leadership there, members of SNP socialists. And we have quite a few councillors, uh, quite a lot of councillors, actually, and a few MPs and MSPs who support what we're trying to do. And so you mentioned the SNP executive, and I know that there's been criticism um, of you know, the SNP, much like the Labour Party, people have criticised uh, internal party structures. From, from your perspective, the SNP um, structurally, how democratic is it as a party and how much can activists influence the decision making processes? Well, um, going back to the previous conversation, uh, I've always been quite surprised by uh, not by how bureaucratic it is, but actually often it's a lack of decision-making. Um, there, there has been a sort of top-downness about it, and that's obviously been reflected in the delegate conferences in the last few years in terms of members wanting more of a say and more of a direct thing. But in fact, in practice, uh, policies and conference motions and stuff are debated and decided by 
elected rank and file delegates who decide the agenda for you know the, it's called the conference arrangements committee so i'm i'm actually elected to that this year so i get a say on choosing some of these motions um so it's not a question of the, the leadership gets to tell the party what to do but obviously there's a distinction between what the government does and what the party's policy is sometimes and you know the party's policy is clearly sometimes to the left of the government um you know particularly on issues like uh you know the currency for example when they um the uh, Growth Commission's results and prospects was debated and at the time we discussed what the currency was going to be and how quickly we would transition to a Scottish currency. Uh, the membership revolted on that because we wanted to have a much shorter transition. We want to have an independent currency within two years of a vote for independence. Uh, the strategy around a referendum, Plan A as we call it, that's overwhelmingly supported by members of the left, but it's been recognised that with going to the Supreme Court now, that option is off the table for the, the moment until there's a more agreeable government. So, in fact, in, interestingly, overwhelmingly, the, the left in the party supported Hamza mainly because of the progressive ideas and values. One of the big fights we've had, particularly from 2019 onwards until the Alba party departed, was fighting their transphobia and their anti-woke uh, agenda, as it was. But basically, they were resisting changes which recognised the affiliates, particularly the BAME, uh, the LGBT+, plus, and uh, you know other affiliates having a say on the executive, for example. So there was a concerted effort to to remove our representation from the NEC. That failed, and that was part of a an anti a reactionary agenda, which thankfully we defeated. But we had a big fight for two or three years until they they departed. Now it, it's much more uh, friendly and uh, a better position. The left won, but in the context, I would say that Hamza voted to continue Nicola's uh, legacy in the sense of pushing uh, that left social democratic agenda. I think people forget as well, if you look at the beyond just the party, Scotland is actually one of the most left-wing uh, democracies in the world, don't mind in Europe. You know, there's very few places where 75% of your electorate vote for three left or centre parties, that's mm -hmm. Labour, ourselves and the Greens, you know, where the Conservative Party is a very small minority party uh you know in most european countries it's the other way around the, the left is usually the minority so we are unusual in that respect uh, and also you, you can see this in the council chambers I, i'm obviously there with in an SNP minority administration sometimes we rely on green votes sometimes we have unified positions between the greens ourselves and labor because we share a lot of values in common. we support workers rights we want to tackle the environment we want to tackle poverty those three things obviously and that's what our voters want. So there's a clear thing about the, our society, which is more left-wing, and therefore what the SNP's positions are in relationship to it are more left-wing than is possible in the discussion that's happening in England at the moment. So I look at it from that perspective. And, you know, I, I see that Nicola Sturgeon's period was to the left of Sandwich. She was not as close to big business as he was. She would never have greeted Trump on a golf course. Whereas mm -hmm. and I think Holmes is definitely pushing us in that same direction. I'm very happy that he won because I think if the other candidate had won, we would have gone backwards and indeed probably the people like me who may not have stayed in the party because I wouldn't have found it comfortable place to have a, you know, people who are opposed to equal rights for LGBTQ plus people or not prepared to stand up against transphobia. You know, we're, that's still a battle to be had, but I think we won that battle politically. And I think that's reflected in the way that members vote despite all the pressures of the media. You know, they 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 didn't vote for the media's chosen candidate for leader. They voted for Hamza because they recognised Hamza would continue the progressive line. Hmm. So you, you mentioned the, the uh, various social struggles and the way in which that has resolved itself perhaps inside the SNP in favour of uh, oppressed groups like trans people. Um, what I think is interesting is in the wider grassroots, um, you do get you do come into contact with people across party boundaries, for example. Um, do you think that battle is still being fought within the grassroots, the shared spaces of which the SNP is only one component? And is there anything that you think you can learn from the SNP's experience and how that should be handled and how those battles can be won? Obviously, there's, there's a difference between the, the party and the movement, but the party is 
the the main force within that movement. There's no doubt that the possibility of having a referendum or a vote on anything is contingent on how successful the SNP is, both in government and in winning elections. You know, we have to govern competently, and that's part of why the support for independence has risen, because, frankly, over the COVID period, uh, Nicola's sterling leadership on that work from definitely increased support for independence you know the reaction against brexit and the way that england is going and the way westminster works or doesn't work and the ridiculous Tory governments we've never voted for that has pushed people more towards independence as a way of getting back into europe so there's there's no doubt that the SNP is really important but it's not alone and therefore the values of that wider movement and what is the offer for independence you know this is the issue for me because obviously as a socialist i want the the, the most socialist possible society we could have on independence but it's pretty clear if independence isn't on an anti-neoliberal agenda isn't on a, a model that breaks from the economy that Westminster and Lo the city of London have to offer then it won't be any radical change now it's pretty clear from Hamza's speech at the convention and Dundee recently that's where he's at on this he's very clear that he wants independence because he wants to radically change things and break with their model uh, and that that's a profoundly radical and the good thing to want. Uh, so when we're dealing with our allies in the wider movement, we need to be careful that we ally with the right people so that we don't alienate the potential progressive majority that's out there for independence. We know that obviously there are groups of the population that are more favorable to independence like young people, but their values are very clear, clearly inclusive of, of LGBTQ plus communities' rights, equal qualities just generally, and of course the concentration on the environment and doing something radical to tackle the, 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 the direction of just transition. They want us to do something big against big capital's responsibility for polluting the planet. Now, you can't do that with anything other than at least a left of center agenda. So it, it's really defending the, that trajectory, that prospectus for independence i'm for for, for unifying of any force that supports that but there are forces out there who claim to want independence who don't want to take action on those questions and if and in fact will put people off independence if we give them too much of a hearing so i want to see the progressives unite that's smp greens you know people in other parties who support independence i want them to come together and part of our role as the smp's left is to work with other left forces around issues like the Republic, for example, which we're going to do this week, and we did already. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I've got back to involvement in the Radical Independence Campaign and a non-party activist. I'm curious how you see the, actually the role of these grassroots organisations and how distinct those roles are from the roles that are played by the government and the SNP. Um, how does it all fit into a strategy that makes us get closer to independence? Well, Clearly, the if you look at the, the beginnings of the 2012 movement, I say the 2012 movement, the Yes movement and before, from those first rallies in 2012 in Edinburgh, obviously you had the SNP, you had the Greens, but you also had the RIC, you also had anti-nuclear campaigners, you had Anwar Anwar representing sort of the anti-racist strand. There were all these progressive, anti-neoliberal, anti-austerity strands that came together in the Yes movement that we built. The Yes movement was clearly the expression of that anti-austerity feeling in the country and the desire for meaningful change. We didn't just want to change a flag, we wanted meaningful change. The Rick's role in that campaign was really important to have somebody expressing anti-neoliberal, anti-capitalist critical views as part of the, the process of changing the country. So that was, people can't underestimate how important that was. But also you have to say that the, the speeches that very first meeting uh, in 2012, remember it, in Prince's Street Gardens, they were all left-wing speeches. They were all anti-imperialist, anti-nuclear and anti-austerity speeches. So the very content of our movement has been left-wing from the beginning. And the question is obviously to when that movement was defeated in the vote, we didn't anticipate that most, a lot of those activists would then suddenly join one political party to do that. And those of us who were looking at it as leftists from the outside, we were kind of almost uh, you know, confused by it. We were almost too late to form a, a party of the radical left. We were too late in doing it. And by the time we got round to it, that momentum had swung away from us. And most of the socialists I know who were involved in the, the independence campaign of that time found themselves in the SNP. So it was a choice of 
do I join them and try to work with them in some way and try to keep my links with the people outside or do I do nothing <laughs> or just do I do vague propaganda? So I see it as important that we support them. So I was very struck by the efforts of the people who founded Rick to try and stop it, which was a bit weird for me. I don't understand that. You know, the, Rick had a recognised brand name which everybody in the independence knows and re remembers and recognises for the contribution it made. It made no sense at all to, to try and shut it down. So I was very supportive of your attempts to mm -hmm. keep it going and to also to have that anti-capitalist expression clearly organised. Now, there are anti-capitalists in Labour Greens and the SNP who support roughly what Rick stands for. Now, I don't doubt that sometime in the near future we will have a, an anti-capitalist political expression, but maybe it's not going to happen before we actually become an independent country. But whatever happens, I do think that anti-capitalists need to work together. We need to push whatever parties or movements we're part of, whether they're trade unions, community groups, or political parties, further to the left to, in dealing with the crisis that we've got. Because unless there's proper action against capitalism, when a lot of us are not going to be around to see the result. One thing um, comes to mind when we're talking about this role that the SNP plays in government and also trying to you know, meet the expectations of people who were drawn to the anti-neoliberal and anti-aesthetic message. Uh, as the SNP's time in government goes on and you know, taking account of how the devolution settlement within the UK works, there are points at which, for example, because of industrial action, some, someone could feel that there's a tension between the SNP government and then those activists and, for example, the trade union movement who are coming up against them. And you see sometimes expressions of this too with the climate justice movement, maybe putting demands on the Scottish government. So, so from your perspective, how does the SNP um, resolve that tension in such a way that, or, or, or the left within the SNP respond to that tension so that those activists still feel that independence would benefit what they want, even though they're in a position where, for example, sometimes they're making demands on an SNP-led government? Very clearly, um, this austerity is offered in London, right? It's offered by the Tories. It's the Westminster's and the Tories' austerity. And mm. we have spent a lot of time in government as the SNP mitigating the impact of that. Now, we've successfully done that in, you know, we look at things like we don't pay beds. We don't have university tuition fees. We don't have um, mm. prescription fees and all of the rest. Of it. We've introduced free transport for you know, all of these things are good things, which are mitigations against the austerity. But we have reached the limit of that. And the, one of the things that have suffered, obviously, has been local government. Local government has not mm. been funded the way it should have been. Uh, but I also have to make a relative comparison here. I have friends of mine who are Manchester councillors and Liverpool councillors. And Liverpool and Manchester are very comparable cities to Glasgow. So if you look at what's happened to them in the last 15 years, while we've been in government here, Glasgow is night and day different to what they're experiencing in Liverpool and Manchester. They've had massive decimations of local government budgets there, massive cuts of the workforce. You know, the workforce in, in Glasgow is actually bigger than Liverpool and Manchester combined. You know, they're similar sized cities with similar histories and similar histories of the industrial transformation and changing towards more leisure economies. So we're similar in every kind of way except that we're in Scotland and our government has to some extent protected us from that uh, that neoliberal consequence but we've reached the the end of the road and how far we can protect now the question is what do we do if we're in government we either implement the Tories uh, program of, of neoliberal um, you know deformation as I would call it it's not reform it's deformation or we we break with it now obviously we want to become independent because we want to break from it but in the meantime, we, we can't be of the ones who say, well, we must do the damage until we can do something else. Um, there comes a point where we won't be able to justify carrying out any of these policies. You know, there's, you know, I've been very clear. When I came into office, I, you know, nobody comes into office to cut budgets or to, to cut workforces or, you know, but we defended the position on equal pay, for example. We've had to pay a billion and a bit, like 1.2 billion to pay the justified claims of workers who went on strike to to get equal pay. And that, rightfully, we settled it, but it took an SNP council to settle it because socialist members decided this was 
unacceptable when we came in in 2017 we negotiated mm. the settlement so I, i'm of the view that we need to take the workers stand on this so if the trade unions are making demands which i think are justified for workers to to not have the impact of austerity imposed upon them because they're not the ones who caused it so we have to be on their side um, and i'm very adamant about that that you know there will come a point where i won't agree to to implement uh, a cut that I think attacks working class people's ability to survive the crisis. You know, I think we've spent a lot of time and money supporting, you know, anti-poverty initiatives, trying to uh, deal with child poverty, especially. So we've done some good things around the child poverty. So those are good things mm -hmm. which don't exist elsewhere, but they are limiting the impact given the, the full financial crisis that we're facing. Um, so I, I'm of the view that at some point, the government and the councils have to agree a strategy which opposes Westminster and also unites what we do in government and in the council chambers with what the people are doing on the streets. We've got to be a movement together. And there's precedent for this. I have experience of it in London during the 80s when we had a thing called London Bridge, which united the council workforce with the councillors and with the people of London in yeah. opposition to what Thatcher was doing. And I think we should do the same. I'm curious, with your activist background, how you found becoming a councillor, because obviously a lot of what you're talking about now is about the responsibilities that you have as an elected official. Um, is that quite a transition to go from activism on the streets to being within the council chambers? And how have you managed to like keep those connections within your role? Well, I try very hard to still be active. I mean, I, I wear a hat with four colours which is red, gold, black, and green. And they represent the four movements I'm part of, actually, although the rest are colours. But, you know, I'm a red for my socialism. I'm a yellow for my Scottish nationalism. I'm a green because I'm an environmental activist and I always have been. And I'm a black person because I'm, I'm for black self-organisation and liberation. So those four strands have always been part of my politics. Um, the, it's always difficult to you know, go into elected politics because inevitably your relationship with the social movements that you're part of changes because you're now in charge of stuff. You also have to implement your policies and programs. Mm -hmm. You can't just oppose stuff. You have to actually implement stuff. People expect you to solve the, their problems and they trust you with their votes to do that. And if you do, if you let them down, then of course that obviously has a bearing on the on the support for the movements that you, you back. But I keep my my uh, contact with Black Lives Matter. I'm a member of Glasgow, Get Glasgow Moving, the transport campaign. I was at COP26. I spoke there, uh, and I've worked with refugee organisations very closely over the, the piece. So I try to keep my activism all going whilst also being in the council chamber. That's difficult, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not impossible. You just have to be committed to it. But I see it that I'm a voice for those struggles inside the chamber. That's the way I see my, my role. I'm not just an SNP voting clone. I, I am, of course, I'm loyal to the manifesto I stood on because I, I put a manifesto out there, which I, I had confidence in. But I also remember my connection with the class and the movements uh, i'm a i'm a voice for those movements inside that that council chamber uh, and mm -hmm. that's what i will continue to be and of course glasgow has a, a particular importance to what we were talking about earlier and which the snp became more of a social democratic movement that began to resemble in many ways the labor party and of course the snp replacing the labor party as the party of glasgow is such an important part of that process so kind of being on the ground floor there and seeing the post-referendum period, um, there's all this talk about, you know, Labour's road to uh, recovery at national, uh, in, at a Scottish national level runs through Glasgow. Do you get the impression that some people are attracted back to the Labour Party? And how do you think the, the, the SNP or those on the left generally in the independence movement have to respond to that? Uh, it's pretty clear that there's a big difference between whether Scots voters find they found the Jeremy Corbyn offer attractive, which mm. they clearly did, especially in 2017 where they made a recovery, but that was a sort of UK-wide anti-austerity and pro-socialist feeling amongst even English working-class people. Uh, so that was somewhat understandable that people, to a degree, went with that wave. However, since the end of the Corbyn era, and with the guy that we've got now, it's very clear that he's offering not just Tory light, but 
almost Tory identical. Uh, that is clearly noticeably in the polling that we have and everybody else has done, not attractive to Scottish voters. Uh, and Labour's more unionist than thou position in terms of rejecting the, the right of the Scottish people to vote on these questions in a referendum or otherwise, uh, is even further entrenching the, the frankly, how much they hate Scotland. As Hamza said in his speech on Dundee, it's not about what... Uh, uh, Scotland, uh, you know, Keir Starmer wants to do for Scotland. He's only interested in what Scotland can do for Keir Starmer, where I see mm. But the obvious point is that if you want to oppose a Tory economic programme, member Labour, if they take office, and they may, there's no guarantee they're going to be a majority, but even if they're the biggest party and they take office, they're going to be implementing the Tory's pro economic programme for two years while they transition. So we're still going to have the cuts. We're still going to have the budget deficits for Scotland. We'll still have the denials of, of democracy in terms of overruling Scotland. We're still going to have all that from, but just red Tories rather than blue ones. So to my mind, it's very clear the stance that the SNP and, and pro-independence people have to take. It's that the only real hope of a progressive society that moves in the direction of socialism is going to be maintaining a vote for pro-independence parties. This is not a tactical question. This is a strategic question because our revolution is a democratic revolution to bring about the end of the, the British Union. You know, that's a profoundly revolutionary act. It's not just a, a simple, you know, uh, juridical legal thing. It is, in fact, the breaking up of one of the world's leading imperialist powers. That is a profoundly revolutionary thing. It's no wonder that the, the powers that be, whether they're down south or north of the border, are working their hardest to undermine the political party that, that fights for that. That's the SNP. That's why we're getting all the attention negatively speaking, that we are just now, because they recognise the threat that we make. With independence still at 50%, despite everything they've thrown at us, people still want their decisions made right here in Scotland. Uh, and that's a that's a, a belief and a feeling I think is still going to grow, uh, and we have to capture that. But it, it requires us to sort of mobilise the popular support for that at the same time as keeping the electoral process going as well so it's a difficult balance it's hard to be both of those things at the same time the SNP is both an electoral vehicle and a social movement uh for, for change for radical change and it's obviously got allies in that in the broader independence movement but it's it's still got to be the the main movement that pushes in that direction so that's why I think it's important to be in it that's why I think it's important to try and um, influence its direction and I'm pleased that we can still do that and some figures in the SNP have suggested at various points that in, in the event that Starmer wins the next UK general election, but he doesn't secure a majority in Westminster, that there's potential for the SNP to make a deal that says, you know, we'll put you in number 10, provided that you transfer power to the Scottish Parliament for an independence referendum. Um, it sounds, by the way, that you're framing the project as a revolutionary project, that one, of course, Labour would oppose, that you're sceptical that they would agree to that. Would that be fair to say? Not only will they not do it, agree to it, they won't need our votes. Even if we won every seat in Scotland, it's mm. pretty obvious that the Liberal Democrats will win a lot of seats off the Tories in England and they will have enough votes with the Lib Dems to form a majority. So I don't even think it's even about influencing Labour. It's all about mm. whether we have a legitimate process that is internationally recognisable. Obviously, they're denying us a referendum vote because they know we'd win mm. it. So the question then is, what's the next best thing? And effectively, the very brave thing that Hamza did, you know, if you remember that we were going to have, uh, before Nicola resigned, we were going to have a, a, a convention where we were going to decide between two strategic options. One was, do we use the Westminster election as a de facto referendum, or do we use Holyrood as a de facto referendum? Now, Holyrood is definitely the better grounds for us, one, because the electorate is more favourable, because 16 to 18-year-olds can vote, and the 400,000 migrants who we've given the vote to, who are not British passport holders, they can vote in the Holyrood election. So a de facto referendum would be far more favourable to independence on that mandate than on the Westminster one. But Hamza very bravely has said that, has made it a single issue election. He's saying that you vote for the SNP, you're voting for Scotland to become an independent country. Now that makes it very clear what the elections about the Westminster election is next year what it's about in Scotland uh, that 
is pretty. I was not expecting it. I have to be honest. I was not mm -hmm. expecting that. I understood him to be a bit skeptical about uh, the Plan B stroke, uh, you know, de facto referendum. But essentially, for us to have a, a, a process that's recognised by all the European countries, by international community, and all the countries out there, we have to be seen to be doing something that's recognisably democratic in the absence. Mm -hmm of the right to have a referendum. And so I think that will do it. You know, he's saying that we win that election, we win the majority of seats in that election in Scotland, mm -hmm. we win the right to negotiate the mandate. And I, I hope that after that, if we won, the only thing to negotiate with Keir Starmer would be when do we have the referendum to ratify? Mm -hmm. And what, what would that look like then uh, in terms of a ratification referendum? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the offer of what, what the division, you know, what comes is just doing just now is looking at the division of, of, of assets, and liabilities, and looking at what deal will we come to for that. Um, I'm relaxed about that. But when would the currency come in? That would be a question as well. Obviously, I want that within the first two years of independence, because um, that's the party policy. Um, I, I would say that I'm quite relaxed about the detail. I suppose that we would have a referendum about what the detailed what will happen on independence that's what we need a referendum for you know the application mm. to rejoin the eu for example so we need that ratified in referendum too so that's why we need one after we if we win that westminster general election and we start that process of negotiation well the other thing as well is, is we start negotiating with europe as well and part of that will be negotiating recognition of the validity of our vote mm. And what, and what do those negotiations look like from you? Coming from a left perspective, you know, conversations in Britain around the European Union and, of course, the discussions that took place in the run-up to the EU referendum, there's people on the left who are for the EU and there's people on the left who are against it. And in the specifically Scottish context, what do you think are the contours of that debate? Have we had it to a good enough extent? And what do you think the, the what, what outcome would you prefer in terms of what our relationship with Europe looks like? Okay, some people in in the far left, and notably comrades of mine who were in the organisations I've been in, uh, mm. were anti the EU because the EU is neoliberal and capitalist in the way that Britain is. But I think they forget that the main reason why the EU is neoliberal is because it's got majority right wing governments that are similar in type and ideology to the British government. You know, Europe is right-wing and neoliberal because the majority of governments in Europe are right-wing and right-of-centre and neoliberal. But also, Europe has been cast in the image that Thatcher and Blair uh, created it in. It's largely the way it is largely because of the British influence in it. <laughs> you know, so people forget that, that, you know, if a, a left-wing Scotland, with its left-wing trajectory and its left-wing um, direction of travel rejoins that block one of the things of course it will immediately do is influence and impact upon the direction that, that block goes now yes we'll have freedom of movement free trade and all of that but also the social policies where that comes from the pro-human rights pro-internationalist agenda that's something we'd be bringing to the table so it's not that we want europe as it is we want europe to change we want a united states of europe in which the citizens the working class has some rights now, for that to happen on an internationalist basis, uh, Scotland's influence will be to push it somewhere to the left, not to leave it as it is. So, yes, I think it's right that people should have a referendum and a choice. So there'll be some people on the left who will be opposed to that. So most people will support it. But the obvious thing about the referendum we had in 2016 is that people on the left didn't understand the full implications of what it mm. meant. That, that, that when we were asked to do that from the right, it's like being on, in a room on fire. And if you take the door to the right, which is towards the fire, you get burnt. And unfortunately, mm. we did. And people were fooled that just because we're anti the, the neoliberal economic policy, it doesn't mean we should leave the room from that direction. There wasn't mm. a left room, left exit door <laughs> that was progressive or mass mobilizing or legitimate. This whole referendum was done on the basis of racism, anti-immigrant sentiment, making European citizens who live in the UK third-class citizens, which is what it did, mm. dividing the working class the way it did. Uh, and the, the net result we've had of that has been these chaotic years of Tory governments getting in with with uh, working-class votes in England. You know, that that's what we've had. It's divided the working class in a way we never imagined. And 
I think the left made some big mistakes. If the left had been unified and campaigned against Brexit for the reasons mm. I've outlined, it might not have happened. It would have, you know, that 1% or 2% of the population we could have influenced would have made a difference. Mm. <laughs> so to my mind, the left is actually culpable for, for that, that mistake that many working class people now realise that they made. Uh, which has made them poorer, made food more expensive, reduced their GDP, lost jobs, and also cut immigration, and indeed lost all those migrant workers who were doing valuable work within our social services, our public sector, and our economy. We've lost hundreds of thousands of people who were making a real contribution. We've made our yeah. working class a bit less international. Yeah, and you mentioned in particular that the discourses around migration seem on the face of it, very different in Scotland than they are in England. Um, coming from your perspective uh, and being involved in anti-racist struggles, to what degree is that the case? And uh, is the difference, is it is there a stark difference or is it exaggerated? I don't think it's exaggerated. It's pretty clear from, you know, if people were very anti-immigrant and anti, anti-migrant in their sentiment, they could vote for parties like that. But UKIP was wiped out. Uh, there hasn't been a far-right party to replace them in Scotland's uh, electoral landscape. And even the Tories that we have are fairly liberal on immigration questions, not great fans of Boris Johnson, but most of them. So uh, even the Tories haven't pushed an anti-immigration platform within Hollywood, for example. You know, we've had a progressive sort of attitude towards the reception of Afghans and Ukrainians. I wish it was the same for all the other nationalities. So the issue for anti-racists is to translate that that progressive positive feeling that Scots have clearly had by welcoming those migrants, by welcoming mm. all migrants. Now, we, of course, have got the record of Kenmuir Street and, you know, what we did in Nicholson Street in Edinburgh as well, that we used the, the mass popular feeling of welcome to stop the immigration police deporting people who should have the right to be here. But in the end, our government and our councils need to put their money where their mouth is in terms of allowing asylum seekers to work, study and live somewhere as equals. You know, we, we have some powers in that department. I know we don't have all the powers, but there are things that we could be doing. You know, for example, making education free you know a point of access recognizing people's qualifications recognizing them as home students are things we could do to fight racism and intolerance which are there in scotland we should remember that while scotland isn't as bad as england it's still a north european country with a history of colonialism and racism and mm. imperialism just like denmark norway and all the other independent countries that we admire if we look at all of those countries they all have growing far-right ethnocentric movements, which are reactions to globalisation and to the sense of the loss of national identity in that old white sense. There's no doubt that there's sections of our population that feel that way too. Now, at the moment, they don't have a political expression. We still have to fight their ideas. Uh, some of them are unionists, some of them are not. Some of them are actually from our side of the fence who, who want uh, limits to immigration, who don't want to change the... The, the white Scottish character of the country. There's some people who think that. So, you know, some of those support mm -hmm. independence. So we can't say that it's all unionists that reaction. So we still need to fight racism in, in, in that respect. And moving on from the question of the EU, there's other questions around independence, uh, how we configure the state things. Around the question of the monarchy, for example, has become very pertinent after um, Elizabeth passing last year. Um, there's also questions like, for example, NATO membership. So there's all these different threads. And I think they run alongside the EU in terms of how strongly some people feel about them. What do you envisage in terms of a process that allows us to resolve all these questions in becoming an independent country and beyond? Well, uh, it's very interesting that the two or three main leaders of the party now, two, I think three out of the four, so the leader and deputy leader in Westminster, the leader and deputy leader in in Hollywood, our first minister and the two Westminster leaders are openly declared Republicans. Now, that wouldn't have been possible. You wouldn't have heard that from Nicola or from Alex Salmond, <laughs> that they're openly declared Republicans. You now can say very openly, if you're an SNP politician, that you're a Republican and you're out there. The SNP socialist was able to be part of the Our Republic uh, coalition you know, against Prince Charles's uh, recent uh, crowning uh, you know, monarchy as well. So the monarchy has become up for debate. And I think that that means, and it means that 
it changes the nature of the debate about what an independent Scotland will be. I think the chances now, we always thought before that having a republic would be a second referendum after independence. Mm-hmm. I actually think that now, the way we're forming as a country, I think there's more of a consensus that perhaps we should be a republic now that Queen Elizabeth has gone. Charlie is not our king. Charlie Windsor is not legitimate as far as I'm concerned, and I'll be there on in, in Edinburgh tomorrow with with the colleagues and the comrades there protesting his supposed crowning because I don't think he's legitimate. I don't think a, a landowning um, German aristocrat of of who lives in England uh, should be the head of state in Scotland. It makes no sense at all. You know, as Hamza said in his speech again, it is the people of Scotland that are sovereign, and for that to be the case, we can't have a a sovereign lord. Uh, that, that's a foreigner to us, you know. That he might live in, have a castle in Scotland. He may own land in Scotland, but he's he's not one of the people. He is a a, a foreign overlord, and I, 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 I the way I see him, um, you know. So I I think that the the project of what independence is, I think it's more likely now than before to become a republic. Now, in terms of NATO membership, again. Obviously, Scotland has to apply to join all of these international bodies, and so we're not mm. automatically members of any of them. You know, so when we apply to join the EU, we'll have to have a referendum for that. Uh, on, on NATO, I don't necessarily think we would need a referendum on that, but it's obviously the party's policy to join NATO. Now, I was present in 2011 when the decision was made to change the party's policy. Historically, we've been an anti-nuclear party, anti-NATO for that reason, because we don't... We, recognize the nuclear umbrella now that policy was passed very narrowly in 2011 with mm. alex Salmon's arm twisting in the conference hall i witnessed it myself and it was one of the reasons why i was not attracted to join the SNP in 2011 because mm. i saw that that i knew that people who voted against their conscience i knew they were anti-nuclear and therefore anti-nato i know that people pragmatically voted for that because they believed they had to vote for that in order to help the independence cause you know that people who would support nato could still vote for independence and hope that not much would change but actually i think things would radically change if one thing that nuclear weapons in the current conflict in ukraine has shown is that the threat of them is actually not very meaningful they're not weapons you can use and quite rightly mm-hmm. the ukrainians are resisting militarily against a nuclear power and it's not made a bit of difference or their nuclear bullying mm-hmm. it's a weapon they can never use uh, it's actually much more important if you're looking at the defence of Scotland to have conventional defence. We actually don't have a na- naval protection of our waters. We don't have uh, air force properly protecting the skies. We have we've had UK uh, aircraft car- carriers with no planes on them for, for ten years that we supposedly built in, in Scotland for the glory of Britain. You know, we're not really protected now. We it, we're much more protected not by having nuclear weapons but by having a conventional defense now if we do that in alliance with other countries i'm 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 relaxed about that but i'm i'm not relaxed about having uh, a nato nuclear umbrella if we're against nuclear weapons and we are and hamza restated that on, in dundee very firmly that we want to abolish nuclear weapons on our we want them removed we don't want nuclear submarines but then the obvious thing is what do we do instead of that uh, that, that will be an argument, I'm sure, within the party and within the wider independence movement. Would you reassure, for example, people who perhaps share a different vision from the SNP that if they vote for independence, there is going to be a process, there is going to be uh, a way in which they're, they they can be heard and their voice will be taken into account? Um, is that part of the pitch that you feel you can make to you know people in the Labour Party, for example, who go back and forth on independence? Yeah, I think it's really crucial because there's no doubt that having done my work in Glasgow province, right, which was overwhelmingly Labour in 2014, when we won the, the a 57% yes vote in our area, and obviously Mary Hill did slightly better than us, but you know Glasgow was 53% yes, and that couldn't have happened without that massive chunk of Labour voters, somewhere mm-hmm. between 25 and 35% of them who support independence. Uh, so we have to have a way of them joining a movement that that recognizes their existence now it's difficult at the moment because labor members can't be openly for independence without being essentially kicked out and barred from positions within the party um but i think we have to do something that allows labor supporters to to agree that 
we agree on this direction of the country. We might not agree on that party being in government or this party being in government, but we agree about the general direction of what kind of welfare system we should have, what kind of economy we should have, what kind of just transition we should have. I think there is a lot of consensus between, certainly between Labour leftists, SNP leftists, Green Party members, and indeed socialists outside those parties. We, we agree on a lot about public ownership of, of energy, uh, about having a, an insulation program for housing to to cut just you know to improve just transition. We agree on a lot of stuff. So I think it's quite feasible to win Labour supporters to a, a broader independence coalition. So I think the role of the left within it is a really important guarantee for for Labour supporters that the direction will be progressive. Okay, thanks, uh, Graham. I'm going to just have one last question because uh, I think this has been a really interesting and wide-ranging discussion and there's a lot to digest from it. Um, but I want to end on a positive note because so much of Scottish politics and international politics can be negative. So I want to ask, what is it that either in Scotland or around the world today that is giving you hope? Well, that's a difficult one. Sorry, um, that's tough. Small or big, but something that has given you hope. This is the world where uh, Trump is in the position to possibly get re-elected. Erdogan <laughs> got re-elected. Viktor Orban is still in power in Hungary, the majority government. Uh, this is an era, unfortunately, where autocratic authoritarians with a democratic veneer uh, are... are still the predominant actors in global politics uh never mind and i haven't even talked about putin yet you know the fact is okay the western powers have decided that they will back the ukraine and actually give them the weapons they need but they could have stood up to him in 2014 and didn't they could have stood up to him in all those years in the 2000s when i was one of those people who warned against what he was doing to the working class then. You know, he was removing their labour rights, stealing their pensions, giving it to the oligarchs, privatising things in the hands of his mates. Uh, yet those same mates were welcomed with red carpets in London. So that's the kind of world we have. And then we've got the climate change crisis. I have to say I'm not too hopeful because I don't see yet any successful resistance to that coming from our movements and that's the thing what what can our movements do i i think scotland is one of those beacons because our independence and our push for a progressive social alternative to this reactionary neoliberal model of capitalism is one of the right spots i mean i actually think we've got a responsibility because we, we can show the way to a lot of people uh, even even on simple things like loss and damage for example that was one of the most progressive things that nicola sturgeon did to open that conversation up about the damage done by western and indeed eastern industrialized countries to those poor nations that are most affected by climate change she was the one who initiated the fund and that discussion although it's probably not going to get much of a hearing at the cop the current cop they're doing in one of those petro gulf states but the fact that that was on the agenda was shows you the role that scotland could play so i'm quite hopeful that if we get our independence we'll be able to have a very influential clout on the progressive direction of of society and the measures that need to be taken against capitalism and the, the big multinationals, particularly fossil fuel companies. I'm very confident that Scotland can play a key role in that because we're one of the few countries that can do the just transition with the technology, with the alternative renewable energy sources. We've got the ability to do it quickly and I hope we do it. I think that ended actually quite hopeful in the end, <laughs> Graham. So thanks very much for that and thanks for for taking the time to speak with me. Um, so this has been an Ungags podcast. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. If you're interested in finding more of Ungags materials, uh, you can visit leftungagged.org and you can also visit our Twitter account, which is at underscore Ungag. Thank you all for listening. And Graham, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Connor.